Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Before punk exploded in London, it ruled New York's Lower East Side. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Today we conclude our series on 1977, the year punk broke, with a look at punk stateside, talking to music writer Ira Robbins. And later in the show, we'll review the new album from Brooklyn Afrobeat band Antibalas. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. I was chilling in the shining the light night dial doing anything my radio advised. With every one of those late night stations playing songs, bringing tears to my eyes. I was seriously thinking about hiding the receiver when the switch broke cause it's old. They're saying things that I can hardly believe. They really think we're getting out of control. Nielsen, the global consumer media information company, has done a recent study about the way teenagers consume music. Now, think about the myths that we have about how teens consume music. They're killing the music industry. Yeah, exactly. They don't buy music, they don't listen to compact discs, and they acquire most of their music by, quote-unquote, stealing it, peer-to-peer file sharing. Nielsen surveyed 3,000 people online, and here's what they came up with. They found that most teenagers listen to to music via YouTube, 64% of the population. Oh, that makes sense. I mean, in the heyday of MTV, people loved the music, but also they were taking fashion cues and, and dance moves they were learning. Exactly. YouTube is number one, but uh, radio a close second, actually, to the way teens are discovering music. So they're still using a traditional model to discover some of their music. In addition, they are more likely than any other age group to have bought music, which is extraordinary to me. You know, the myth is that they're stealing all this stuff. Well, they're the biggest consumer group of all, 72% versus an average of 68% in the last 12 months are more likely to purchase music. Now, over a third of teens have bought a CD in the last year, so everybody's saying the compact disc format is dead, but teens are still buying them. 54% of them do have some sort of a music application on their cell phones, but we don't have any numbers as to whether they're actually using them. And most of them are more likely to buy a CD or some sort of music at a Walmart than a mom-and-pop record store. Ugh. So only 17% of them are actually engaging in any kind of music sharing. In other words, they are not stealing the music in droves. In summary, Jim, I think this Nielsen study is telling us that uh, teens are a lot more traditional in their music consumption habits than we may have realized. Bye. 
Craig, amazingly, we have made it through 351 shows on public radio without ever once playing a song by or speaking <laughs> of the insane clown posse, that rap duo from Detroit who like to dress as wicked clowns and who have an incredibly devoted following across the U.S. Annually, they get together for their big gathering of the Juggalos, took place recently, and they used it this year to announce an initiative against the FBI. This is one of the strangest stories I've seen in recent years. Last year, 2011, the FBI, in its National Gang Threat Assessment Report, declared that the Juggalos were, quote, a loosely organized hybrid gang that is rapidly expanding into many U.S. communities. They were saying that these fans of the Insane Clown Posse were, quote, sporadic, disorganized, individualistic, and often involved in simple assaults, personal drug use, and possession, petty theft, and vandalism. Well, that's that's kind of 80% of all rock and roll fans, <laughs> actually, I think. So the Juggalos are fighting back. They have started a website called JuggalosFightBack.com, and they are retaining legal counsel trying to, I guess, build a class action suit against the feds. They're encouraging any of their fans who have information about harassment, arrest, denials of rights to contact them, and the Juggalos will demand freedom under the American Constitution in this great United States. I was reminded historically of the other stupidest thing the FBI ever did to rock and roll. Back in the 60s, the FBI launched an investigation into whether the hit single by the Kingsman, Louie Louie, was pornographic, had obscene lyrics. And, you know, the, the famous stories of Kingsman were so drunk you couldn't really tell what they were singing. It's like, I really think that our national law enforcement organization ought to stay away from popular music because they clearly don't get it. That is the immortal track, Cretan Hop, by the influential New York punk band, The Ramones. Makes me smile every time, Greg, after all these years. Last week, we kicked off our examination of 1977, the year punk broke, by looking at the punk scene in London. Now, 35 years later, we can see just how game-changing this year was. But not only did the sound of pop music change, the attitude changed. You saw that in English bands like the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks, but those groups took a lot of their inspiration from the New York scene. Bands like Television, the Ramones, the Talking Heads, they were all playing on New York's Lower East Side since 1975, but it was really only in 1977 that the music began to hit the mainstream in a big way. That's right, Jim. This week we're turning our attention to the punk scene in New York. We're joined by music journalist Ira Robbins, who is the founder and editor of Trouser Press, a music magazine that was a major chronicler of that New York scene in 77. Ira, welcome to Sound Opinions. 
Hey guys, how are you? Great to have you here. So you're working as a music reviewer in New York in 1977, and you know we're looking back at that year today and all the great music coming out of New York City. But what was your perception of it from the inside? I'm wondering if you had a sense of whether this music was being appreciated outside of New York. If I could just roll back the clock a little bit, I think what makes 1977 interesting in New York is that there was also a 1975 in New York. Because <laughs> unlike London, New York had a pretty solid scene in the same genre for a couple of years before anyone took notice of it. You know, whereas London kind of exploded overnight, New York in 1975 had Blondie, the Ramones, Heartbreakers, Talking Heads, Wayne County, The Dictators, Patti Smith, The Shirts, and all these other bands. So that 1975 was pretty much the same as 1977 as far as the New York club scene. sense that any of us that went to those shows had was that this was a scene that was never going to go anywhere. You know, we loved what we had, but it was the same couple of hundred people that went to all the shows. It wasn't growing, especially the bands that got signed got signed to small independent labels, by and large, that, you know, didn't really have high hopes for them. And, you know, with a couple of extraordinary exceptions, proved that to be true. That's fascinating because we look back on it now and we think, oh, it was this great flowering. But you're right. I mean, being a punk rocker then, being sort of on the outside, it certainly wasn't widely accepted nationally. But the CBGB's thing, obviously the scene coalesced around the Lower East Side. What else was happening in terms of the club scene there? You know, in terms well, of Max's had been, you know, preceded CBs, you mm-hmm. know, and Max's had kind of the older crowd, you know, the, the, the Bowie, Dolls, Lou Reed, Velvets. Kind Warhol. Of, yeah. Warhol, yeah. And, and Max's was a really bizarre place. I mean, you know, Springsteen played Max's and Bob Marley played Max's and right. uh, Patti Smith kind of lived there for a while. You know, but there was also the Club 82, which was a, uh, a lesbian transvestite bar downstairs on, uh, I think, Second Street, which was a pretty scary place. And, you know, you kind of had to take your heterosexual teenage angst in hand to go there. And then there was this, this huge place in Queens called Coventry. They had two stages, and I saw one show there with the dictators on one side and the dolls on the other. Now, this mm. is all way before 77. Now, Ira, you have a New Yorker's perspective on this, because what I think distinguishes 77 is that this is when the rest of America catches on. Mm-hmm. These records finally are filtering out to the rest of the country. But before we quit the CBGB scene, a word about the fashion. When you look at pictures of that club today, people are dressed really casually. Mm-hmm. They look like college students. I mean, you didn't see the spiky haircuts and mohawks you saw in London. No. New York had a couple of different scenes going on at the same time, as every big city does. I mean, when the Dolls started, the Dolls fell right into the glam rock world. They were the center of an audience that was also going to see Roxy Music and David Bowie and T-Rex. And when we went to those shows, we dressed up like crazy. It wasn't punk rock by any stretch of the imagination. It was glam rock. 
We all wore stacked heels and we all wore, <laughs> you know, like great shirts and, you know, great jackets. By 76, 77, it was much more functional. I mean, it was, you know, CB's was never an event show. You went to see a band you liked. What is CBGB's to you? It's a local club. I live a few blocks away. I come free because I'm privileged, you know? So I come to see my favorite band. Good band, you know, it's, it's an open forum. Well, I think the biggest fashion statement was the Ramones with the, the matching leather jackets and the ripped jeans. I know the guys in Talking Heads and television were like wearing collared shirts and things like that on stage. It wasn't any big deal in terms of a fashion statement, right? No. I mean, I, I, you know, people were really at that moment still trying to be iconoclastic. There really wasn't a fashion to follow. You know, the bands were all different. The lifestyles of the bands were all different. You know, I mean, the television were, you know, sort of pretentious French intellectuals in their heads. You know, whereas the Ramones were, you know, street kids from Queens. I think everyone kind of went their own way for a few minutes. Wait a minute. Before we get too nostalgic, let's remember a few things about New York in this period. The city is bankrupt. Crime is rampant. Rats are running up and down the streets of the Lower East Side. There's the Son of Sam killings. All it takes is a blackout, and suddenly New York City is the third world. And there were thousands of others who took to the streets to plunder and to pillage. Over 2,500 looters and vandals arrested during the first eight hours of the blackout. The looters concentrated on small businesses, mostly in the poorer sections of the city, where unemployment and crime are chronically high. How did that atmosphere factor into things? New Yorkers, there's an expression that some New Yorkers have used. I don't know if it's broadly enough used to actually have entered the vocabulary, but we used to call it a grim smirk. In other words, it was a grimace and a smirk at the same time. Hmm. And it was the understanding that life sucked and it wasn't necessarily going to get better, but so what? You know, we'll get through it. And it's kind of a joke anyway. And I think if there's a punk ethos that could be distilled down to a facial tick, it's that. (laughs) And I think that was perfect for 1977. I mean, those bands were saying, it's bad out there. We're going to have some fun. And I don't think it was any deeper than that or any more profound than that. You know, going to First Avenue in the Lower East Side, which is actually where I was born in the 70s, was terrifying. It was like going to CBGB's was like taking your life in your hands as far as, you know, my sheltered little white boy experience was concerned. I went there, you know, gulping, you know, and, and hoped I would get home at the end of it. Well, let's go through these records. Now, the Ramones actually had two records come out in 1977, and the debut came out in 76, and it was just mind-blowing to the people who heard Mm -hmm. it. I remember when a kid in my dorm in college brought it to us, 
for two weeks we played it as a comedy record, and then the uh, the second <laughs> week we were like, wait a minute, no, this is this is really good. And then in '77 they come out with Leave Home and then Rocket to Russia, the third album, the big commercial breakthrough, if you will. But let's mm-hmm. talk about the Ramones a little bit. What was the perception of them in New York City? They were familiar. They were popular. You know, they drew a crowd. I remember the first time I saw them, I hated them. You know, they can't play. And where, where's the minor chord in Warm California Sun? You know, and it's just like all that kind of stuff. And it was basically my old school Eric Clapton is God mindset being insulted by the stripped down basicness of what the Ramones did. I mean, we thought the Ramones were funny, actually. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, to, to your point about thinking they were a comedy act. I mean, we used to make fun of Joey the way he stood on stage. We used to call him the salamander because he would kind of, sl- you know, kind of wrap <laughs> himself around a mic stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, right. You know, the next time I went to see them, I loved them and never changed that opinion. And those three records, you know, are like the uh, the cornerstone of, a, of an entire generation of music. Yeah, it is I, hard to separate those four. They are kind of of a piece. Absolutely. You know, but the other thing that I would add to this is that, again, and I I hate to be the prequel guy here, but, you know, the dictators had started several years earlier. The dictator's sensibility of that kind of pop culture garbage, take drugs, have fun, be stupid, puke on the floor, that was there for a couple of years before the Ramones came along. And I have to say that in a small sense, you know, the Ramones felt like they were picking up that cudgel. The idea that a rock song could be perfectly obnoxious Mm. while being enormously fun was kind of a new idea that the dictators pioneered, and I think the Ramones carried forward, you know, much more efficiently. We'll be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX with more on New York punk and music writer Ira Robbins. And later in the show, we'll review the new album from Afrobeat group Antibalas.
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's the track Friction by Television from their 1977 debut, Marquee Moon. Now, Television was far from the only New York band to release a classic album in 1977, because that year also saw a slew of great records from groups playing CBGBs and similar clubs on New York's Lower East Side. Today, as part of our series on 1977, the year punk broke, we're taking a look at that New York scene. We're joined by music writer Ira Robbins, who covered New York punk for the magazine Trouser Press in 1977. Ira, there were a lot of punk bands in the scene that year, but there were also more diverse acts like Blondie, The Talking Heads, and Television. If the Ramones were the quintessential New York punk band, I think people are still trying to figure out what Television did to be part of that scene. I mean, Marquee Moon doesn't really sound like a quote-unquote punk rock record. Not at all. Do you remember what Robert Criscow, the Village Voice editor, uh, wrote about that record, Ira? I do not. He said it sounded like Yes or Genesis. <laughs> and, and, you know, and well, there are certain ways it kind of does. Well, I was horrified when the British press reviewed their first tour and referred to the meandering Grateful Dead guitar solos because... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To me, the Grateful Dead has always represented one nadir of American music. I mean, just, you know, an absolute, you can't go past this in horribleness. And (laughs) the idea that a band that I, at the time, thought very highly of and in subsequent years have come to absolutely worship should be compared so wrongly, just completely never made sense to me. Well, Marquis Moon, to my mind, now that I've heard a lot of the live tapes that have surfaced since then of television... It seems fairly constrained compared to what they were like live. I mean, they were a ferocious live band, and Marquis Moon, by comparison, is a fairly constrained record. Was that your experience? Well, I mean, there were two televisions. There was the television with Richard Hell, and then there was the television without Richard Hell. The television with Richard Hell was a falling down, chaotic, I use the word with all due respect, mess. Whereas the television with Fred Smith was a focused, manageable, producible band that made an unbelievably great album. You know, if you listen to the tapes from the Eno demos on through to the album, it's a shocking transition from songs that kind of meander and don't really have any punch and kind of come and go and are all about Tom. They suddenly become this intensely focused group. I mean, you know, sort of when you reach the, you know, the pinnacle of of some of those songs, when the solos just kind of hit their mark and, you know, just the whole thing just explodes. With a friend from another 
not something they were capable of six months earlier, at mm-hmm. least nothing that they demonstrated capacity for. Mm-hmm. Great album for sure. All right, we wanted to talk with you because you have that insider New York perspective. In 77, this music was making its way outside of New York for the first time, but you guys had heard these records for several years already. Right. And it's interesting to hear your perception of how these records captured that scene because what you seem to be saying is that the records were pretty different from what was happening live on stage, right? Well, I think there was a definite discontinuity between who those bands were on stage and who those bands were once they got into a studio with a producer who had an agenda and a record company that had anxieties. And I think the idea that those bands became something different in the studio, I mean, these these bands were all, with a couple of exceptions, were pretty young, Mm -hmm. you know, and they were inexperienced. I mean, there was no farm system in those days the way there is now. They hadn't been doing, you know, whatever the indie rock equivalent of mixtapes is, and they hadn't been playing the festivals, and they hadn't developed a following beyond a couple hundred people and James Walcott and The Voice, maybe. It was weird when, like, the British press would come over and, and really, you know, goon them because it was like the the perception and the reality were pretty far af- apart. Ira, it seems like we look back on 77 through rose-colored glasses, and to me that is particularly offensive because the punk ideal, if not always the reality, was no illusions, no separation between audience and performer, no rock star attitude. We all are one. By the dead boys, the dead boys have shown me tonight how rock and roll should be done. How should it be done? With ain't no, no pyrotechnics. No phony showmanship, just pure rock and roll energy, pure gut, pure stamina. All these bands, including the mighty Ramones, however, became just like Aerosmith, these big corporate rock entities. You know, the Ramones traveled in separate buses for the last 20 years of the band. They didn't even talk to each other. Even television cashed in with a reunion tour. So was there ever really this idealistic ethos that we were not going to become the rock stars we hated? I agree with the general principle of what you just stated, but I I wouldn't agree that the Ramones became Aerosmith. I just saw Aerosmith, and they definitely were not the Ramones <laughs> in, in any way, shape, or form. And I don't think television cashed in on the reunion tour. I think television took an opportunity that made sense and made a really good record and toured behind it, You know, which is not the same thing exactly. But yes, there was an ethos. I mean, there was an ethos that made rock stardom not a dirty word. It made pathetic arena stardom a dirty word. You know, I mean, everybody that played in bands had grown up loving rock stars. And they probably, at the time that they were playing on stage at CBGB, still loved certain rock stars. And nobody begrudged the idea of making great music and having lots of people like it. In a very big way, a lot of the bands that came up in the early 70s and the mid-70s were playing at being rock stars. I mean, there was a real sense of like, hey, we can do this too. I mean, DIY wasn't simply eliminating the middleman. It was kind of, let's put on a show. And it had that same air of inconsequence that became lost over the years. But I do think there's an ideal that you're not doing this because you expect anything to come of it. You know, but I think they all wish that Clive Davis would stream in one night and, you know, swan in and sign them. (laughs) Would you sign with a major company? Nah. I mean, yeah, well, it's 
you know, like, if it people depends. want to hear it, you might as well. So yeah. I never got to work right. another day in my life. Yeah. It depends on what they say we have to do and what we don't have to do. We're not going to change. If they sign us, great. We ain't going to change for them. You know, no way. They did sign some bands. And, you know, Seymour, Seymour Stein, the head of Sire Records, was the, the, the messiah when he came to CBGBs. Because he would just, like, look through those hooded eyes and go, I like these guys. And two minutes later, you know, Lenny Kay would be in the studio with them or Ed Stasium or somebody. It wasn't one thing or the other. That, that's where my rose-colored glasses get trampled underfoot because it was never one thing. There were bands that had been around for years that were great, like Suicide, that were clearly never going to succeed. There were bands that arrived from completely different places and thought that this was just a quick path to fame and fortune like the shirts. There were bands that came from other cities and thought it was just a better place to be like the Dead Boys. Well, you mentioned Suicide, uh, Martin Rev, Alan Vega, this duo that their first album actually came out that year. They were part of that scene, and yet it didn't seem part of it. They alienated everybody, it seemed like. What was your experience with that group? They were scary. I mean, if you saw them in a small club, I mean, Alan would would run out and grab stuff. You know, I mean, he was just pretty intense. But I I think Suicide were were serious. They were dead serious. He's screaming the truth. Yeah, and it didn't seem like they had any prospects at all that this was going to be commercial or they were going to get signed to a big label. I mean, that was another level of intensity. I mean, if you want to talk about pure punk, they may have been the closest to that scene came to it, right? Maybe. On the other hand, who else got produced by Rick Ocasek and who else had a song covered by Bruce Springsteen? Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, Springsteen was a fan, no doubt about it. We've mentioned the Dead Boys a couple of times. What did you think of them? Well, when the Dead Boys first arrived in New York, I thought they were, and I will use the pretentious French word, Aravistes. (laughs) I mean, I thought they were like, they were kind of the carbon copy band because they were sort of half the pistols and half the damned. They were kind of determined to outshine everybody else. And I mean, I recall seeing the drummer hit Stiv in the back of the head with a floor tom that laid him out cold on the floor, and the four of them got up and walked off and Mm. left him there. Mm. Yeah. Stiv Bader was always being knocked unconscious. Yeah. I also remember Stiv putting his head inside of of the bass drum on more than one occasion. Mm -hmm. And they were actually a pretty sincere band. I thought they were a little bit fake in the beginning, and I didn't really like all their songs. But on the other hand, you know, Sonic Reducer is a classic. But I brought him up because it seems that at that point when the Dead Boys released that album in 77, Americans are already beginning to copy the Brits. The Dead Boys wouldn't have been the Dead Boys as they are on that first album if they hadn't been like, hey, those Sex Pistols, we were doing this three years ago in Cleveland of all places. We should mm-hmm. cash in on this and do a little bit of what they're doing. Oh, I agree. I agree. And, you know, and by, the, by 77, the Damned had actually come over and played at CB's, which was a big deal. And it was kind of like the intercontinental transfer system was starting to take place because obviously the Ramones had played, you know, in England in 76 and, you know, Patti Smith had been there and the impact was clearly being felt and it was being shipped back to us. 
The other thing I think that needs to be reemphasized, Ira, as, as you said, all these bands sounded so different. There wasn't a sound. It was a, a diversity of sounds. And when you think about the chasm between what television sounded like with those uh, you know guitars going on those excursions and it's something like the Talking Heads, which was very R&B and funk-influenced, was all of this stuff being accepted equally? Because one of the things that became part of that punk scene within short order was, you know, the rules that you had to play and look and sound a certain way. How accepted was this diverse lineup of bands in the New York City scene at that time? I don't think New York ever really had any rules. And I think if it did, that was the downfall of the scene because it was really a a freedom moment. I mean, bands were really expressing themselves, to quote the Bonzo Dog Band. They were not really self-conscious about playing a, a role. There was no set image. I mean, the Ramones... They certainly didn't invent the motorcycle jacket and the jeans. I mean, geez, that goes back, you know, 20 years. There was a lot of notice taken because so much was written about the New York scene. But I think the ways in which the bands and their images kind of exploded in a hundred different directions was perfectly acceptable. And I think, you know, one of the pieces of this puzzle that you're sort of overlooking at this point, you touched on with the Talking Heads, was, you know, the whole sort of very hard funk side that James White you know, and the contortions and those kinds of bands was bringing up, which was formalized a few years later on the new, No New York album, which I think was 1980. Everybody kind of picked their own, you know, shelf to live on. You know, they were going to be more radical or more extreme or less extreme or, you know, more musical or less competent or more violent or more funny or, you know. And I think there was a an explosion of diversity. It, it wasn't really like that after the, the start. I mean, I think in England, that Petri dish mutated much faster. The British scene became a joke. By 1980, it had to be replaced by post-punks, you know, the Duran Durans and the Adam Ants and all those, you know, and the Spandau Ballets that were just taking the the spirit and completely rejecting the music, whereas the New York scene didn't really mutate that quickly. You know, it was like those same bands were still kind of poking around a few years later. The ones that got picked up and transferred to the national stage did so, and then everybody else kind of stayed behind. But it really wasn't until you get to, like, the mid-'80s with, like, the hardcore matinees and stuff that the the routine and the, the archetype and the set sound really became formalized. So our perspective is 2012 looking back at 77. Some young kids being introduced to this music for the first time. Should she care? I mean, what's the legacy? How does it hold up? I think it totally holds up. I think, you know, there's an amazing amount of great music there. And I think those those albums display an enormous breadth of creativity, you know, and and also a kind of in-depth understanding of rock's past and its future. But if you're looking from 2012, you get to see a bridge to everything that went before and a, a blueprint for a lot of what came after. You know, you really hear the freedom being expressed as a hundred great ideas being tried all at the same time. And not all of them work, but enough of them did. And I think those artifacts of that era really hold up.
We have been talking to the great Ira Robbins of Trouser Press, New York historian, one of the rock critic inspirations to both me and Greg. Ira, thank you so much for coming on Sound Opinions. Oh, it's a pleasure talking to smart guys who actually care what they're talking about. Close out our discussion on the New York punk scene of 77. We're going to play some of our favorite tracks from that era. Now, Jim, I think that Ira did a great job of talking about the Ramones as the quintessential punk band, but I think the thing that was most fascinating to me about New York in that era was the diversity of that scene, how many different bands fit under that punk umbrella. Bands, you look back now and say, were they really punk? What were they exactly? And I think the Talking Heads uh, definitely fit that description. Three people, David Byrne, Chris Franz, Tina Weymouth, who met at the Rhode Island School of Design in Providence and then moved to New York in 75. Their first gig, in fact, as the Talking Heads, was opening for the Ramones at CBGB in 75. Two years later, kind of poetic that they added Jerry Harrison as the fourth member of the band. And I think Harrison is a key member of the Heads in some ways because he's the missing link. Uh, the missing link between the Talking Heads and the Velvet Underground, to whom they were often compared. Harrison played in that great Boston band, The Modern Lovers, with Jonathan Richmond in the early 70s. So he joined the band, and they really start to coalesce their sound. What made the Talking Heads unique was that they were kind of perceived as a punk band, but in fact, I think they were really a dance band in punk rock clothing. The whole idea of funk being a part of the punk scene, you know, disco was the dirty word at the time, right? Well, the Talking Heads loved disco. They loved R&B. They were huge fans of bands like Bohannon and Parliament Funkadelic, and they were bringing some of that into their music. So the rhythm section, can't say enough about the drumming that Chris France did. And Tina, who learned to play bass from Byrne, developed a style that was really ahead of its time in a lot of ways. She was playing a lot of lead bass on these tunes, carrying the melody, because Byrne's guitar was much more abstract. And then you had had Harrison in the middle adding background vocals and these kind of musicianly keyboard melodies that really brought some glue to the band's sound. Now, a lot of people describe their sound as kind of thin and nervous, and that debut album that they released in the fall of 77, Talking Heads 77, didn't really hint at the full power of this band as live performers. It did sort of emphasize their weirdness. But I think Byrne as a lyricist really conveys a different approach on this record that no other band could touch. That strain very from-the-throat style of singing that he had was very appropriate for the subject matter. You know, some people compared him to Tony Perkins, you know, in that Hitchcock movie Psycho, that sort of very repressed individual with a very dark underside. And in this song that I'm going to play from their debut album, he embodies that personality, this government bureaucrat who's who's saying how happy he is to be working this very mundane job in this very mundane setting, and yet you sense there's a little darkness underneath the whole thing. It's Talking Heads with Don't Worry About the Government from 1977 on Sound Opinions.
Don't worry about the government from Talking Heads 77, a great choice to celebrate this year, Greg. I'm going to go with what I think, however, is the ultimate American punk anthem, Blank Generation by Richard Hell. You know, Richard Myers was born sort of to privilege, went to a Tony prep school in Delaware where he met a guy named Tom Miller who would become Tom Verlaine. Richard Hell was in television round one, got kicked out because he couldn't really play. Mm. He did have a great song that they played for a while, though, Blank Generation. You know, from there, he went on to a group called The Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunders of the New York Dolls. He didn't seem to fit in anywhere in the New York punk scene, and there were drug problems and unreliability, all sorts of stuff. He did inspire hugely, no less a person than Malcolm McLaren, however, who said that he saw... I quote, this creature, Richard Hell, and it was definite 100% inspiration. He went back, he formed the Sex Pistols, he told them, write a song as good as Blank Generation, but make it your own. They came up with Pretty Vacant. Hell finally got his act together and put together a tremendous band in 77. Robert Quine on guitar. We did his obituary a while back. An incredible guitarist who spanned the entire history of rock and roll, from James Burton in the 50s through uh, the Velvets and Captain Beefheart, and brought in this jazz sensibility. No effects on his guitar, just chaotic dissonance, all with these notes. It came from a strangled, tortured place in his soul. In fact, the story is that when recording Blank Generation, he wasn't playing nasty enough on the solo, so Hell, during one take, went into the room and started strangling him, and that is the sound (laughs) you have on the recording. On the drums is a young man named Mark Bell, who would become better known as Marky Ramone. When Tommy Ramone left the bands, he he joined the Ramones. You know, you talked about Tina Weymouth's uh, incredibly inspirational role in the Talking Heads. Part of it was just so great to see a young woman up there. Mm -hmm. It said to so many people in America, I can do that. Ivan Julian, the final member of the Voidoids, Richard Hell's band, was a young African-American. He he played with great soul. He had a great sensibility. And there weren't a lot of, of people of color on the New York punk scene, but he was one and more would come as punk became post-punk. You know, that first Richard Hell and the Voidoids album, self-titled, is a classic, classic record. Blank Generation is a timeless song. It's pure, wonderful punk rock joy on Sound Opinions. Here it is. I was saying, let me out of here before I was even born. It's such a gamble when you get a face. It's fascinating to observe what the mirror does, but when I dine it for the wall and I set a place, I belong to the blank generation and I can take it or leave it each time. Well, I belong to the generation, but I can take it or leave it. Blank Generation from Richard Hell and the Voidoids on Sound Opinions. 
So what were your impressions of punk in 1977? Did you ever catch a show at CBGB? Tell us at 888-859-1800. We'll be back after a short break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX with a review of the new album from Afrobeat band Antibalas. Richard, are you gonna go out tonight? I am uncertain, I ain't feeling too right. But I rip up my shirt, watch the medicine. Yeah, I'm going out, out into sight. Like the rest at the door of the club lounge, and I so undressed. Then you open the door, and the noise takes the floor. Oh, baby, night after night here tonight. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that is Antibalas with their fifth studio album and a track called The Rat Catcher. Antibalas, originally known as the Antibalas Afrobeat Orchestra, a 15-piece multiracial band based in Brooklyn, formed in the late 90s, inspired by the Afrobeat sound from Nigeria by one Fela Kuti. Now, Fela was a legendary saxophone player, a giant of African music in the 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way until his death. Now, what was Afrobeat? That was the sound that he invented. It was a blend of funk, African highlife music, jazz improvisation, call and response of tribal music from his native country, and he blended it all together into this new sound with a decidedly political bent. It was his way of venting his disgust at the Nigerian leadership. He saw all this economic hardship around him, and he turned this music into a political statement. Now, for his troubles, Fela was harassed, beaten, imprisoned. He was a constant target of the government throughout his life. And I don't think anything could have satisfied him more to realize that he had the government's attention. Now, that thread was picked up by Antibalas in the late 90s, a band that began with this sort of hip-hop and funk perspective and morphed into Afrobeat with a more political perspective in the late 90s, early 2000s. They've made five studio albums now. Antibalas, the self-titled album, is their first since 2007. The group's membership changes considerably over time. Now there are about 10, 11 pieces in the band. Let's find out what the group is up to now with a new track called Dirty Money from the self-titled release Antibalas on Sound Opinions. Dirty, not dirty money, oh. Dirty money, not the flow. Dirty, not dirty money, oh. 
Dirty Money, the lead-off track from album number five from Antibalas, a self-titled effort and the Brooklyn group's first since 2007. Greg, it's great stuff. You know, if you can't listen to this music and be in some way uplifted and inspired, I don't think you have a pulse. There is the question, okay, what right do these Americans have to play this African music, this Nigerian music? Well, you know, they have been champions of Fela. Fela, let's remember, listened to Armed Forces Radio and heard this wonderful American music, guys like James Brown, and he put his mark on it and gave it to his people. Antibalas is taking it back. The name, by the way, means bulletproof, very much in the spirit politically of Fela. And Antibalas, the members, arranged and and played the music for Fela on Broadway recently. They love this guy, but I don't think that they're slavishly trying to recreate his sound. They are bringing their own touch to it. That track we heard, Dirty Money, it can be heard as a uh, Occupy Wall Street anthem. Mm -hmm. You know, elsewhere they're talking about the fight that Latinos are, are having in this country to be recognized as citizens. I think it's very much an American record in a style that really belongs to the world, and I think it's a buy it from me. Jim, I think uh, Antibalas is really one of the great bands of the last decade. If you go to one of their shows, you're going to be inspired uh, to dance and uh, and also to think. I mean, the fact that it can hit you on multiple levels like that speaks to the you know transcendence that this band is able to achieve in concert. I don't think their records are ever quite as good as their live show, but this self-titled release comes closest of all in a lot of ways. You know, what's different about them from, say, Fela's sound is that Fela was very much a dictator in his band. He was the guy calling all the shots. Everybody else had to pay attention to him. He'd have these 40-piece orchestras up there, but it was really based around this one guy and his sensibility. He was a legend, and he deserved that spotlight. Antibalas is crafted more as a democracy. You're, you're not really about any individual statements here. I mean, there's some fine solos. But I think what really works for me about this album is just how, you know, for lack of a better term, how tight this band has become. Those ensemble horn passages, the way the rhythms work together, they've really worked out this sound so that it is it just hits you in the face and won't let go. It really works on those multiple levels, but I think just in terms of the ability for this band to get you moving doesn't matter what your political orientation is, you're going to love this record. And if you dig deeper and you hear tracks like Dirty Money and The Rat Catcher and Him Belly No Go Sweet, you can definitely hear the uh, commentary on our current state of society, the economy and, and the stink that it has created in our, our society. So great record from Antibalas, buy it record for me as well. That's two enthusiastic buy-its for the self-titled Antibalas album. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? 
Next week, Jim, we have a challenge. We are going to play the seven essential songs about each day of the week. Oh, that'll be fun. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. We are bidding farewell and thanking our intern for the summer, Deborah Olalea. Our assistant producers are Annie Minoff and Michael DeBonis. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. What else can we say? Except gaba gaba, we accept you, we accept you, one of us. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, my name's Alan, and I just heard you mention that Wire was one of your favorite punk bands of the 70s, um, coming out in 77. And uh, the first time I heard Wire, I was sitting in my uh, driveway, and I could barely, barely pick up this crazy good music coming in and out of the uh, static. I sat and I listened to the entire album. I think it was uh, Ideal Copies, the album that they're actually playing, but it was coming in and out of focus, and I listened to it, the entire thing, and wrote it, wrote it down, the name of the band, and searched for months trying to find out who this band Liar was, and finally found out who they were, and I've been listening to them ever since. One of my favorite bands, and as a musician, I'm greatly, greatly influenced by them. So, right on. What, what a treat to hear that. Thank you so much. That made me so very happy. Hi, this is Doug from Chicago. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that if you're doing punk rock from 77, you got to mention Live at the Vortex. I can't guarantee you it was 77, but it must have been very close to that. And it was a British, uh, you know, obviously live recording. My buddies and I at University of Illinois in about 1980, that became our anthem, and we named our house after it, the Vortex. Great live album. Bunch of no-name bands that really, really, really rock. Really, really punk rock, I should say. So, uh, that's it. Bye. You know it wasn't worth a being alive in 75. You know I did again. Too many kicks in 76. But 77 has changed all that for me, for you. And you can say what you want to say and do what you want to do. Hi, this is Jim. I'm from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I just listened to your show about the 77 punk scene in England and really enjoyed hearing it. In 77, I was 16 and living in Barbados. And if you think the radio station options were limited in the U.S. at that time, down there it was much more so. But I wrote a letter to the editor of the paper saying the radio should play some punk rock. The local DJ told me he was going to play it on his show. But unfortunately, when the station manager heard the music, he got fired before he could play it. So, a revolution died. Hey, Jim.
evening, Greg. This is Jacob from Chicago, originally from Cincinnati, and I'm listening to some old podcasts and I was listening to the, the Hits the Road episode and wanted to bring up Cincinnati. Uh, of course, I'm from there. I have a lot of love for the place, especially the music scene. Spin Magazine wrote in the grunge age that Cincinnati was going to overtake Seattle as a music center, and it never quite did, obviously, but some pretty great bands, uh, Over the Rhine, and uh, obviously the Afghan Whigs came out of that scene. I think it's still thriving today. The hip-hop group Y on Anticon moved from their place out in Oakland back to Cincinnati and are representing Cincinnati. Faking suicide for applause in the food courts of malls And cursing racing horses on church steps Playing the wall at singles bingo All-time gringo so uh, maybe the next time you do a road trip, head down south a little bit, and be glad to show you guys around. Thanks. Bye. Am I an example of a calculated birth to a star chart for clowns? I'm not. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.